in a little series on King David, right? Leadership, influence, well, a little bit of background. First of all, my name is Ken, I'm new here. <laughs> We've gone for about three months and I miss church bad. I really, I didn't miss working, don't get me wrong. I miss church really, really bad. And uh, when I was here um, last last Sunday, they had the good sense not to give me anything to do because I didn't mess it up. And uh, I like this church. Um, but I want to give some background to, we'll be looking at um, 2 Samuel chapter 16. Yeah, the first death in the Bible was a family murder, right? It, it was Cain, driven by envy, killed his brother Abel. And the preoccupation, uh, the concern in the early chapters of Genesis uh, was Genesis is lamenting the um, cycle of violence that consumed early humanity. And if you think about it, you know, without laws, without courts, without a police force, how do you interrupt one violent deed begetting another like a contagion? And this is what was going on in early humanity. One theory says that we humans kill one another more than other species kill their own, and that's a fact, because of our greater imitative ability. It's actually part of our strength. Um, this capacity to imitate others um, actually supercharges our learning curve. So think about how you know babies learn how to talk simply by imitating the language around them. They get this incredible capacity through the simple skill of imitation. But because our sense of imitation, ability to imitate is so highly developed, we also unconsciously imitate each other's desire. We don't just imitate each other's behavior, we imitate each other's desires, which leads to trouble. We want what others want because they want it. Um, and this leads to rivalry, this leads to, when I'm at a, a restaurant, I know I always kind of, you know, scope out with other people, like, what are you thinking of having? And I often even wait for people to order first in case they order something that I then want more than what I think I want. Uh, <laughs> it's just a typical mimetic desire. Um, so this, again, leads to rivalry, right? Um, and that leads to violence. And because we imitate so well, when one of us lashes out in violence, we imitate that. We respond in kind, and violence spreads like a contagion that threatens to destroy everyone. So this was the dilemma of early human groups, how to just not let violence burn through the whole community and end it. Um, the early humans, it is thought, stumbled into a powerful way to contain violence called the scapegoat mechanism, which you've heard about through Emily. Emily put me on to this and I started uh, reading up on it. It was one of the main uh, things I studied on my, um, on my sabbatical. So the way the scapegoat mechanism works is this. As a community enters some kind of a crisis, as all human groups do, it might be a drought, it might be a plague, rivalry in the group increases because there's usually limited resources, and violence that threatens to burn through the whole group. The community learned to instinctively and unconsciously look for a person or a subgroup to blame for the crisis and it tended to form a unanimous mob around the victim, we're talking about early humanity in particular, and either stone the victim, or lynch them, or force them off a cliff, and immediately, it was like magic. 
All the individual rivalries and tensions that were running through the group suddenly resolve and they enter a period of remarkable peace. So when rivalries and violence build up again, the pattern tends to repeat. So you have to understand that scapegoating is a violent means of containing a greater violence and it's fueled by rivalry, which is fueled by our incredible capacity to imitate one another at a deep level, even the level of desire. So it's a murder, the original scapegoating, based on a lie. Um, the guilt of the victim is the lie, and it persists, scapegoating does, as a mechanism, because it works to restrain violence. See, the thing is, when we scapegoat others, we're blissfully unaware of what we're doing because the mechanism only works if the victim is hidden. So, I was the ninth grade um, class president in Coffee Junior High in the city of Detroit. My campaign manager was a guy named Gary Rosenberg. In my senior year in high school, which was Henry Ford in Detroit, most people kind of assumed that I would be the class president, but I couldn't run for class president because I didn't have a 3.0 grade point average. Gary Rosenberg ran instead. I was part of a group that urged my friend Dan to run. Dan missed the get on the ballot deadline, so we organized a write-in campaign. He got more votes, but the principal disallowed the votes because there was no Nothing in the rules that allowed for write-in candidates. <laughs> Gary won with kind of a slim minority. Gary was the odd man out among the other class officers who were all uh, like uh, female athletes. And the, the other officers started complaining about him kind of behind the scenes and covertly as happens in high school. A group of us said, well, let's start a recall campaign. Inexplicably, the faculty advisor, who was who was like tight with these with these uh, young women who were the the uh, other class officers. I think the faculty advisor was like the athletic uh, a gym coach or something like that. Um, she called a class meeting to raise these complaints that were all under the surface about Gary. Can, can you believe that? Like you know, it was. No one had ever talked to Gary about these concerns. It was horrible, of course. He ended up resigning. Now, at the time, I was oblivious, completely oblivious to the injustice of this all. I was unaware of my own kind of like hidden rivalry with Gary, my envy toward Gary, or I was oblivious to how like a scapegoating mob can form quickly and assume the guilt of the victim without much evidence at all. Um, I actually, as I was studying Rene Girard, who's like developed this whole theory, and I was like, I was involved in this at high school big time, so I, I connected with Gary and we went out for dinner with Palios and I said, could you remind me what happened with all that time? And oh, he did. And, uh, and I owned it and I apologized. And he was very gracious and he survived and he did fine in life and it was, it, was, it was a load off my conscience. So we're in this series on the leadership um, uh, lessons that we learned from King David, who was like the preeminent king of Israel. 
Late in his reign, King David was scapegoat. Now, in scapegoat theory, uh, people who are different uh, are, are targets for prime candidates for scapegoating, and leaders are, in a sense, different from others in the group because of their leadership, so they're often vulnerable to scapegoating, as, as you think how, you know, how low uh, presidential ratings are by the end of their term, and how many, many you know, kings are, are assassinated, and Julius Caesar, and all that. It's a, the leaders are often vulnerable to be picked by the group the scapegoats. So this moment that we'll consider was the lowest moment in David's career, but it was probably his greatest moment as a leader. Here's how it went down. So Saul was Israel's first king, right? And the prophet uh, Samuel saw that Saul wasn't doing a very good job, so he identifies David, and when David was still a young man, probably a teenager, as God's man anointed to be the future king. Full of envy, Saul turns on David, who is, you know, kind of driven into the hills, and he's a natural leader, so others kind of rally around David. And, you know, David had plenty of opportunities to kill Saul, right? Um, but he refused. He waited until Saul died, and then he took over. He moved from Hebron, which was the uh, center of the powerful tribe of Judah, to a small town at the time called Jerusalem, which then became the capital. So when all this is happening, Jerusalem probably has like 3,000 inhabitants. It's smaller than, than Milan. Uh, Milan is the new capital of Israel and uh, the place of David's uh, palace before the uh, temple was built in Jerusalem. Now David's family was rife with rivalry. So his kingship started off with this big rivalry with Saul. His family was riddled with rivalry, David's family. David's firstborn, Amnon, raped his sister Tamar, which incensed Tamar's other brother, Absalom, and David ignored Amnon's crime. Absalom eventually, seething with resentment, had Amnon murdered. So there were some family issues in David's family. <laughs> David's son, Absalom, eventually became his chief rival. So it's a father-son rivalry. These can really be ugly. They're unusual, but, but when they happen, it's, it can be brutal. Absalom worked to gain the people's favor while spreading complaints covertly about his father's leadership. And it worked over a period of time. He kind of turned the hearts of the people of Israel toward himself and away from his father. Absalom set up a power base in Hebron where his father started his, his, uh, his uh, campaign to be king outside Jerusalem and he prepared a coup there. So as Absalom and his supporters are advancing against Jerusalem, the people of Israel have been kind of turned toward Absalom. Jerusalem is the center of the Benjamin, Benjamites where Saul's tribe was located. So there's resentment there towards David because Saul has taken over, David has taken over from Saul. So you can see the mix of rivalry. Um, David decided to leave, not to fight. He, he read the tea leaves. He decided not to put up a resistance to this takeover. And he and his entourage, which is quite large, left his palace in Jerusalem, and we find them weeping on the ascent to, of all places, the Mount of Olives, which is just uh, on the edge of the city on the way out. 
where obviously Jesus went on the night that he was betrayed by his disciple Judas, who was working in collusion with the leaders who were jealous, who were envious of Jesus' popularity with the people. Then we have the lowest point in David's career as king. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verse 5 through 14, I'll read it. As soon as I see it, I will read it. <laughs> Okay. When King David came to Bahurim, a man of the family of the house of Saul came out whose name was Shimei, son of Gera. He came out cursing. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. Now all the people and all the warriors were on his right and on his left. Shimei shouted while he cursed, Out, out, murderer, scoundrel! The Lord has avenged on all of you the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, disaster has overtaken you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, one of the David's bodyguards, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. You, see, you can only imagine. This is like the ancient Middle East here. Come on. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? David said to Abishai and to all the servants, My own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamin? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on my distress and the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing of me today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, throwing stones and flinging dust at him. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. You could bet they were weary in spirit and in body. And there he refreshed himself. So step back, something we might not even notice because we're modern readers, is that in the book of Samuel, this is the book of Samuel, named after the prophet who had David anointed as a young man, in the book of Samuel, David, throughout the book, has God's backing. It's very clear. Anyone who's reading 1st and 2nd Samuel know David is God's man. And even to this day in the story, David has God's backing, despite David's many, by this time, faults and sins. He's innocent of the kind of crimes that should get you kicked out of your position. He's being scapegoated. Absalom has been saying it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to go down the troops. This is the logic of scapegoating. Caiaphas, the high priest, remember when people were wondering what to do about Jesus and meeting in the leadership councils, Caiaphas, who was priest, high priest that year, stood up and uttered the logic of scapegoating. It's better for one man to die for them than for the whole nation to perish. It's our way of dealing with things and bringing peace. So the Samuel text is doing something actually that's quite remarkable for its time in history, for the time in which it came together. It's revealing the innocence of the victims of scapegoating. 
might not seem unusual to us, but it was extremely rare at that time. Rene Girard, who developed uh, scapegoating theory probably as much as anyone, says the Bible actually is unique in this regard. This is, the, this is the thing about the Bible that is different than all the surrounding myths of the time. All the ancient myths of period assume the guilt of the victim whose death restores peace to the group. Remember, the scapegoat mechanism cont uh, contained violence that would have been greater, but it would only work when everyone assumed the guilt of the victim. So there was a culture of conspiracy to hide the innocent of innocence of victims in order for this peace mechanism to function for humanity to survive its own violent nature. The ancient myths, in other words, were all told from the perspective of the lynchers, not the lynch. The victims were always assumed to be guilty. Oedipus was guilty. In the medieval stories about the plague in Europe, the Jews, or a woman who was thought to be a witch, uh, was always blamed, and their guilt was always assumed. All the ancient writers assumed the guilt of victims. It was part of the cultural conspiracy to guard the scapegoating mechanism. Except, says Girard, the Bible. Written from the perspective of the lynched, not the lynchers. We know that Abel was innocent. We know that Joseph was innocent, and his brothers were guilty. That's incredibly new in the writings of the period. So that in itself is remarkable. But notice too how David breaks the cycle of violence that's starting to break out in his city, sweeping through the city as these rivalries are, are fueled and violence starts to break out as a result. Shimei from the, is from the clan of Saul, rival to David, comes out to curse David. Jesus tied cursing to murder, didn't he? He says it's verbal violence that's tied to murder. Throwing stones, that's, it's, it's interesting that Shimei is uh, throwing stones. This evokes probably the most common way in the ancient world to dispatch scapegoats is throwing stones. The whole community throws the stones so that no one person is guilty because if they're guilty, it doesn't work, you know. The, the victim has to be guilty and the mob has to be doing what's just and right. Shimei heaps abuse on David, you notice, in the name of the God of vengeance, right? This should be a clue. In the Bible, when someone claims that God is punishing someone else, like Job's comforters claimed that Job was being, you know, he was having his suffering because he was a bad, bad person. They are almost always wrong. The person making the claim is full of vengeance, not God. David bodyguard, David's bodyguard says, let me take this dog's head off. And David says, no, who knows? Shimei might be right. I mean, we don't exactly know what's going on here, but it's possible. You know, scapegoating is so powerful that even victims 
sometimes buy into the story of their own guilt. You know, so Andy, when he's in the hospital room and all those bad things are happening, scapegoating is such a powerful mechanism in human culture that even the innocent victims uh, question their own innocence in the middle of the scapegoat. You know, whether David thinks he's guilty or not is beside the point. The point is, David knows by now that Yahweh, his God, is on the side of the victim. That's what's different about this God than the surrounding gods. He's on the side of the victim, not on the side of the scapegoating mob, right? Jesus told the story of the one and the 99, right? He was for the one. He went after the one lost sheep who normally would be, let the lost sheep go to save the 99. Jesus reversed it. This is the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. David knows it. God is on the side of the victim, not the scapegoating mob. So he says, it may be, the Lord will look on my distress and the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing that's come my way today. Somehow in his gut he knows that because he's a victim, God is on his side. Eventually David was restored, but he knew in that moment that fighting back would only inflame more violence. So instead, what does he do? He broke the cycle of violence by refusing to fight for his rightful place. It was an act of leadership that saved his city. It was his lowest moment as a leader, but it was his greatest moment as a leader. It's the moment he was most like the Messiah who would come. So this is the way of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Forgive. Do good to those who harm you. Don't seek vengeance. Bless those who curse you. Turn the other cheek when people insult you. Violence, Jesus knew by this time, violence only begets violence, which begets more violence. Non-violent response to violence is the only thing that has the power to break this cycle, which threatens humankind's existence. And we know that in the modern age more than in any other time. Jesus himself endured his own scapegoating event, right? The cross. And like David, he didn't fight it. He left it in God's hands. And God came through big time, through the resurrection, by raising him up. And in that act, God was unmasking the scapegoating mechanism for the whole world to see. He was declaring definitively, in a way that couldn't have been declared without the resurrection, the innocence of the victim. And the Romans, the Jewish leaders, the mob, the disciples themselves didn't stand up for Jesus. Everyone was against him, but God raised him up, declaring the innocent, not just of Jesus, but the innocence of all scapegoated victims from the foundation of the world. And this, the message of the gospel was a message that was intended to unmask the scapegoating mechanism. And it, and it has partly worked. 
Today, if, people, if politicians try scapegoating, at least some of the population says, I know exactly what you're doing. Partly because of the stories in the Bible that are written from the perspective of the scapegoated and from the influence of the gospel in the world. So, scapegoating, as a result of all this, is losing its power as a mechanism. Which is good news and bad news. It's good news for those who are scapegoated, but it means restraining violence with more violence is running out of steam as a mechanism to restore peace. And there's a lot of rivalry as a result. What's the alternative? It's the kingdom of God. We're like all in now, you know. It's like the kingdom of God or bust. We have to face up to our own envy and repent of it and be aware of it. Our own tendency to desire what others desire because they desire it and then be in a position of rivalry with them. This thing that's hidden to most of us. We have to, we have to be busted ourselves on this. We have to learn the hardest thing that a person can learn. How to bless when we are cursed. How to forgive. How to love even our enemies. Of course, this will be a long, slow process working itself out in history, in our own lives, and in human history. So our minority brothers and sisters, our racial minorities, our ethnic minorities, LGBT minorities, know full well what it's like to be scapegoated. All of us will get our chance, though, if we stand with them. Speaking up for Muslims after a terror attack, or for our LGBT brothers and sisters, or against the scapegoating antics of politicians. You know, it may not be too popular. It may affect our standing in our own families, if our families see things differently. Scapegoating, you know, it happens all the time. It happens at work. I, I, I hope that you've been like thinking, oh yeah, this happened at work. And, you know, I hope you're thinking, oh, I participated in one of these scapegoating events. But surely you realize if you were ever scapegoated, how it goes down. Your company, you know, suffers the loss of market share because of a new competitor. People start blaming each other. Rivalries that are latent in the, you know, in the workplace kind of intensify. Maybe the group, you know, coalesces around you as the primary cause of the company's problems. So in that lone moment, you know, that sucks to be that person. How do you respond? Do you shift the blame to someone else and become part of a different scapegoating mom? Or do you take the nonviolent response? Do you seek vengeance? Do you keep the cycle of violence going? Or do you follow the path of Jesus? What's that? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's, that's, he understood that scapegoating mobs, by definition, don't know what they're doing. It's hidden from them because this, they become so dependent on this mechanism to restrain violence, which is a good thing. The God of the Bible is the God of the victim. The persecuted minorities and those who stand with them are the ones who have the privilege of the gospel. The privilege of bearing witness to the kingdom of God by practicing nonviolence. Strangely, the burden, the first adopters of nonviolence are the persecuted minorities. 
Where do we know, where have we learned about it in our American culture from Dr. Martin Luther King who preached nonviolence? The people in power don't preach nonviolence. It's the people with any, with any conviction, with any authenticity. It's those who suffered unjustly who preach nonviolence. I was reading an interview on Friday in the New York Times. I discovered something on, on uh, it's like a new technology. They take the news feeds and the stuff that, you know, like in Facebook, and they collate it, and they put it in what they're now calling a newspaper. <laughs> it's really, it's like, right, it's paper. The thing is, you have to buy it. And some of the news is old, but it's really cool. I like it a lot. And uh, just put me on to it in case you haven't heard about these things. They had, a, they had a great article on the, because, you know, this thing in Orlando happens a year, a year, almost a year to the day after what happened in Charleston when nine African-American church members were in a, in a uh, Bible study and a white racist that they had embraced and allowed into the Bible study, not knowing, you know, his, his thoughts and plans uh, murdered them. And then a year later, they have an interview in the New York Times with the members of that congregation. And um, it's in here somewhere. It's a thing about papers. <laughs> it's kind of hard. Find stuff. I want to be able to just like put this under search and show me where it is. Oh, come on. Is the wrong paper? Okay, would you just bear with me, because this is really good. I, I could summarize it, but I want to actually read it. This is really not a cool speaking technique at all. Huh. Oh, here it is. Okay. Some forgive, no one forgets. Charleston, one year later. Okay, it's an interviewer. Mr. Oh, crap. You gained some fame and notoriety when you stood up in court during the bond hearing and publicly forgave Dylan Roof, the, the murderer. Do you have any regrets about that statement? Nadine, I stand behind it all the way. I don't have no regrets at all. I just believe in God and didn't have that hatred in my heart. Esther, I don't forgive him because my heart ain't there. It ain't going to be no time soon. I can't forgive him. Reverend Sharon, forgiveness is a personal journey for everybody. I have not forget, forgotten to that point where I could forgive Dylan Roof. That's just me. Being in clergy, I'm mandated to forgive. Yet I understand that God is a loving God and that he gives everybody an opportunity to reach that path of forgiveness. Felicia, forgiveness is not for the person. The person doesn't care whether you forgive them or not. Forgiveness is for you. Forgiveness is for growth. If you don't have any forgiveness in you, it makes you stagnant. You will never grow. You're giving the individual the power over you. So that means you're still a victim to the person. I want to say that we refuse to be a victim. I want to know primeval to know that just because you took our loved ones, you don't have us. I believe we can get more done now than before, Tyrone. I want to put on record that I'm not there yet. I don't know if I'll ever forget. Isn't it something that this church is wrestling, struggling, not with how to get even. They're struggling with how to forgive. They're bearing witness to the kingdom of God and the only mechanism that will break the cycle of violence that threatens all of humanity if this continues to go unchecked. So, 
This time it's 50, mostly young, LGBT, people of color, I think 90% were Hispanic, were killed last weekend. The killer, as the stories start leaking out, it seems was filled with self-hatred because he was gay in a homophobic culture. This may have been like a mass murder-suicide with a veneer of ISIS terrorism over top. We don't know. What we do know is that our task is not to join the chorus crying out for more vengeance led by the Shiniyites of our time. The time for fighting violence with more violence is passing away. It's the old creation. We are called to participate in the new reality called the kingdom of God. We're called to follow the way of Jesus, right? The innocent victim who rose from the dead to reveal the innocence of everyone scapegoated from the foundation of the world. And so our task is to join the prayer of Jesus. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So we're going to move on to communion. And... Um, I thought it'd be good to actually include the names of those who were killed in Orlando in our prayer for loved ones. And we kind of have to decide, well, do we, do we include the killer's name or not? You know, Omar. And we decided, yeah, we should, we should include his name. If the you know, people of the AMA church are struggling to forgive the man who killed their loved ones, um, you know, they can try, we can try.